This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the 1988 movie Hell Comes to Frogtown, a movie starring Rowdy Roddy Piper after a nuclear war where survivors are trying to find the only remaining fertile women among a sea of mutant beings. Um, well, that just reminded us there's another movie that came out more recently that we'd rather watch, the 2006 movie Children of Men. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. And I am your executive producer and third co-host, Adam Gobeski. Yeah, our second co-host, Jessica Clares, is running a little behind, but I'm sure she'll make it for at least some of the recording. So I wanted to start off today by asking you, Adam, what is your favorite dystopian story? Uh, so you asked me this earlier, and which led me to a long internal soul-searching discussion as to what the difference is between dystopian and post-apocalyptic. Which I had not intended. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, uh, dystopian stories have to involve society in some way, like a totalitarian society almost. Oh, totalitarian specifically? Well, you know, just the idea that you're fighting a society, that the society uh, itself is system. crap, not that there is no society. I see. Right. So that would separate the Mad Max movies, I think, right? probably more post-apocalyptic because they don't really have a society anymore. Uh, so anyway, once I got <laughs> through my soul searching, I think probably my choice is Minority Report. Oh, the movie, yeah. That's the a good Spielberg one. Yeah. movie. It was it was down between that and Brazil. But yeah, I thought you might I pick Brazil. Yeah. actually seen Brazil in quite some time. So <laughs> you go with Minority Report and just the idea that they're always watching you and you can get arrested for things you haven't even technically done yet. It's no good. <laughs> you don't approve of that. Um, so I was I asked the question and then I was I kind of came to the same thing as you did. I was like, wait, what do I actually mean by that? So I looked up on Wikipedia dystopian movies and started scrolling down the list until I actually found one that I wanted to recommend, which one that I came to. And then I was like, well, Adam's going to go with Terry Gilliam. So I can't do 12 Monkeys and I can't do Brazil. So I decided to go with the 2015 movie called The Lobster and a society that wants people to get together in couples so much that if you are single, you're sent to a resort where if you don't couple up with somebody within like 40 days they turn you into an animal of your choice <laughs> oh this is based on that idea that lobster is made for life or something is that yeah it's something like that origin it's of the certainly it's certainly a farce yeah. yeah so why do you bring this up charlie sorry yeah long preamble uh our guest today it's actually a guest on our fifth episode where we reviewed nebraska welcome back to the show patrick hill well thanks for having me again i must have not completely screwed up the first time if you're willing to have me back <laughs> i enjoyed your first one so this episode uh you chose the movie children of men uh the 2006 clive owen film so when we were talking a little bit about what movie we we're going to choose this time around you said something that kind of surprised me which begged that question which is that oh you were interested in dystopian movies it's like oh i mean that is a genre yeah i was thinking you were going to say something like you know action right. or a comedy or something like that and you're like let's do a dystopian futuristic movie well i was trying to figure out what uh what i like li like to watch in the sense that it keeps me th something to think about i mean this is a highbrow show here and yeah. we want to make sure that we have a decent discussion and so <laughs> uh after recently seeing super troopers 2 which uh disappointed uh i didn't really want to go toward 
comedies and um i mean obviously action movies are fun but maybe something more along these lines would generate more interesting discussion yeah so can we ask you the same question uh that we asked each other do you have a particular favorite dystopian story beyond this movie if this is your favorite after you've seen it when i think back to it one of the first movies i saw in this genre and it's not like i'm an expert or um an encyclopedia of dystopian novels or stories or movies but um blade runner comes to mind as one of one of my favorite movies that i remember watching you know certainly not when it came out i was not i'm not that old but uh <laughs> back back in the, in the in your formative teenage years and thinking about uh both dystopian things and kind of noir things and and uh the that kind those kinds of um genres do you agree with our analysis about what constitutes a dystopian movie i i hadn't really thought about it <laughs> in detail <laughs> either but uh the societal component certainly um plays a role and i don't know if it's necessarily i mean it's totalitarian usually in ethos but uh not necessarily i guess not necessarily oppressive or it seems like mm-hmm. the, the oppressive things are very focused and not not broadly applied uh so let's start off with a little bit of a synopsis of the film so children of men is set in the futuristic year of 2027 18 years after the last child has been born on earth due to unexplained reasons we don't know why humanity has gone infertile, but they have. And so everyone's kind of down about this. And we get the impression that everywhere else in the world has undergone massive problems. And only Britain stands alone as having any any sort of semblance of society left, although their society is itself very totalitarian. So into this, we get a man named Theo, played by Clive Owen, who used to be an activist, but nowadays just keeps his head down. But He's contacted by his former wife, played by Julianne Moore, who gets him to help out this young woman to get her to the coast of Britain so she can escape. And it turns out that uh, this woman, Key, is in fact the first woman in 18 years to be pregnant. And so we follow their journey from London to the south, uh, west coast, east coast, something like that. Sussex, maybe? That's probably not relevant, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's a real place. It's like a seaside resort. Obviously, you know, I'm not as familiar with uh, the United Ken- Kingdom or Britain, but that's interesting. You mentioned it's a seaside resort. Is that meant to be in, you know, contrast to modern day? You know, it's it's a desirable place to be now versus uh, an internment camp, essentially, in the future. I, I, I don't know enough about the yeah, history. I suspect that yeah, you're supposed to draw some sort of ironic parallel. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bexhill, hmm. which is southeast England, Sussex. So, Patrick, why did you choose this particular film of all the dystopian movies that you could have chosen? Is there anything that appealed to you? Do you know what it was going to be about? Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be about. Um, I, I I leave it to the gracious uh, co-hosts to suggest to me things because they know a lot. <laughs> they, they know a lot more than I do about the um, the overall uh, movie scene. So, um, I was happy to I was happy to see it. When I was watching it, I, I think I may have seen parts of it before. So some things looked familiar, but it was it, it was essentially new new to me uh, watching it. Yeah, it was actually new to me as well. I had not seen it. And then Charlie was like, hey, we're going to watch Children of Men. And I was like, well, I'm going to muscle my way in because I haven't seen it and I want to. It's also on my list. Nice. <laughs> so I went out and uh, I, I bought the HD DVD to experience it in all its high def quality <laughs> glory. Was those are, a- those are still a thing? 
Uh, you can still buy them on Amazon. It turned out it cost exactly the same price to to buy the HD DVD than it would have just just rented it on Amazon. Oh, uh, so <laughs> so now there's a now there's a market. Yeah, it's competitive. <laughs> and since uh, previous episodes, I believe, have established my enjoyment of physical media, I'm just continuing the trend. My uh, my sister's getting married uh, next weekend, and they've insisted and secured an all vinyl DJ. Oh wow! Wow! Uh, really? Analog. No compression for them. No. Yeah, it just hurts my ears when I hear it. Vinyl or non-vinyl? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess one of the things that's really striking about this movie is even just the first couple of minutes of the film. What did you think about the opening scene at the cafe? Did that surprise you? I mean, I've seen this movie before. I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. So it surprised the heck out of me. I don't know if it surprised me. I think I was still still trying to get into it and you know understand what was going on and it was pretty I think it did introduce pretty quickly that you know society had kind of fundamentally changed as a result of this thing that I think we take for granted as as a given or as something that not only naturally happens but often happens, you know, unexpectedly. It it certainly quickly established that there had been some fundamental change. Did you were you surprised about the explosion specifically that happened like right off the bat yeah yeah and um one thing i after i had watched the movie i kind of looked at looked looked it up and learned more about you know why what you know was it popular at the time is it popular now things like that um and part of what struck me in in that scene and in some other scenes is the particular way that the cameras are are used and you know clearly it was nominated for awards along that line Mm -hmm. Some of these things reminded me had almost a video game quality to, to them, and oh, yeah. and that's one thing that kind of struck me that it was it was the visual effect, not necessarily the plot point that there was an explosion that was mm-hmm. you know where this gentleman had yeah. been, but that that it was visually kind of jarring and loud, you know, sound the sound was jarring as well. Yeah, the cameras are are often kind of down low near the characters, and then I I'm trying to remember this. So the, the movie has a lot of long takes i guess yeah. a lot of times it's not necessarily that it's all done in one take sometimes the stuff is seamed together but um yeah we see him walk i'm trying to remember adam maybe you can remind me doesn't does he walk into the cafe and then walk out is there a transition after he walks out of the cafe or is that all one long shot i have to be perfectly honest i didn't actually notice the long takes until they got to the really long one in the uh, refugee camp Right. Prior to that point, I don't think I'd actually realized that they were doing extended takes. The yeah, the, the refugee camp was 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 a noticeable one, and I actually liked the fact that in that one, some fake blood had sp- spattered onto the lens. Yeah, and it was there the entire take yeah. as well. But but you know, rather than feeling like a fault of the production, it felt a lot more like you were just in the in the middle of this uh, a lot more meaningfully, I guess. Um, the other one that stands out is uh, when they're driving and they see the burning car rolling down the hill and they're kind of attacked by, I, I don't know, I don't know if they were refugees or, you know, some group of people who are counter to their savages, savages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that entire scene, again, it had a very video game like quality to it, uh, to my eye, um, fought, you know, and it was kind of all first person from this one perspective. And, you know, it kind of drives home the fact that in movies you you know obviously a lot of times the camera focuses on the things that you it wants you to see whereas in in that kind of context there's so much that you're not seeing you're almost more aware of that than anything else yeah yeah 
where there's a huge sense of danger and not being able right. to know exactly what is what's going on at any time. That was a scene where so that ambush scene was one where I rewound this time after watching it because I think it was only afterward that I realized what a long take it was and I was looking to see if there were any obvious cuts or like deliberate like deliberately obvious cuts and I couldn't find any. So mm-hmm. it was um Clive Owen's estranged wife, played by Julianne Moore, is the head of a resistance group to the government. And she's in the car, and the big shocker in the middle of that scene is that she gets shot through the neck, which you're really not expecting. I mean, especially since she has second billing on the poster. Yeah, that's true. Like on IMDb, I think she's first listed on the cast list. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess that's a good way to kind of trick your audience, too, and give them a sense of. uh, Give them a sense of complacency or like safety right. or whatever. If you build, build somebody that high and then you kill them off. What is it? Uh, kind of like, uh, I guess it was Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea or whatever. When oh. the <laughs> yeah. shark comes out and grabs him pretty much, I don't know, a third of the way through the movie or something like that. And you're like, ah, oh, why am I still watching yeah. this? Is Samuel L. Yeah, Jackson's I was like, <laughs> this is the only reason why I'm here. But I paid for this ticket. So I guess begrudgingly I'll set. <laughs> um, so there was that take. There was... Yeah, the refugee camp, but there was also the one where um, after that ambush, they had hit out in a country, like house, they, would, they had the hit out in a house in the country um, and had learned that actually the ambush had happened on purpose so that one of the characters could take over as the leader of that group. So there's another long take where they're sneaking out, and that's another one where you don't really know at the start of the scene, how long it's going to be or what you're in for. I mean, they kind of do a good job of not showing their hand at the beginning of it. So, yeah. but it's funny that you mentioned video games too, because that's probably what makes it seem like a video game. I mean, a lot of yeah. like, the camera work specifically, but also the fact that in a video game where you're rendering all of this stuff, there's no reason to cut most of the time, like not during like a live scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam, what did you think about the refugee camp scene? I don't know. I think I just more noticed just that how long it was and that it kept you in the sort of immediacy of the action, right? That the fact that when you don't cut, right, that means there's no opportunities to breathe almost. So like, it's just, oh, this is just really going like we're just still going and we're still going. So, you know, I thought it was pretty well done. And did either of you expect it to be such an action oriented movie? I mean, at least with those several scenes. I mean, I don't know that I honestly had any expectations other than that uh, it wasn't the most happy movie you'd ever see. It was about the only thing I honestly knew about it going in. And that it was based on a book by P.D. James, um, who I recognize that name from because she's also a mysteryer who writes the Adam Dalgleish books that PBS had shown like British adaptations of in the 90s. Um, so that's really all I knew. And then I so yeah, I had like no expectations at all. So I was just kind of, you know, just enjoying myself going, oh, hey, there's action sequences and stuff. And <laughs> this is this is actually like really well done, too. Like, I think that was sort of like I knew people like this movie. Right. But I was sort of surprised at or maybe not surprised, but impressed might be a better word. And just like how well crafted the whole movie is both, you know, the scripting, the direction, the editing, all that stuff. Um, yeah, I I think uh, one thing, it did strike me a little bit that it was a little bit more action oriented than perhaps it, you know, it led to believe because I think for a while the viewer is trying to figure out more details about the society and the structure. And, you know, clearly there's been a breakdown because this fundamental thing has been removed and there's all sorts of implications on that but 
the action scenes, one thing that I thought of was that, you know, ha- having people walk around with guns and, and having a very militaristic presence in movies, you know, of this nature seemed very natural, but the level of violence or, or level, level of action that, that ended up resulting was a little bit higher, I guess, than I thought, than I thought it would be, which, which I thought was very effective. Um, I, I enjoyed it as part of, as part of the telling of the story, but I think that was, that was maybe what, what struck me that it was not only an extended scene, but a fairly violent scene. I mean, you know, like saving private Ryan kind of, mm-hmm. uh, kind of scene that just had such a military, uh, military and violent presence. All right. Well, I hear maybe Jessica coming up the stairs here. So, uh, co-host number two, Jessica Claris, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't get out of work any sooner. No, no, understandable. There are things in life beyond this podcast. As much as I hate to admit it. What? <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> the world I've, exists I've, outside. I've, this I've room. literally been yeah. sitting in my house for the last six months waiting for this. To <laughs> I know Megan complained. <laughs> I do my laundry. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I ask a, just a stupid question off sure. the top? Why why do we care if she gets to this project? Like what why is this good? <laughs> uh I think the idea is that these are the people who can help make people fertile again and that the problem that they've had is that they haven't actually had anyone fertile to like look at. I think is sort of the idea. Yeah, I and guess maybe until that's... they get there and find out that it's yeah. all propaganda and it's just a giant prison. It could be. Well, or, or, <laughs> or that's the sequel, right? Children of Women. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a great question because one of the themes that I thought that came through the movie and multiple, and it happened like in your face multiple times, was that people who were looking like they were going to help you ended up turning, you know, turning on you. Whether it be whether it be the planned ambush, whether it be Sid, you know, it was presumably there, you know, paid off to help them. And then he turns on them the moment he knows, he realizes there could be a profit in it for him. What's to say that being the, uh, the, the, yeah, the cop who helps them into the refuge, helps them break, break into the prison. (laughs) Um, and you know, at the end, I'm not sure, you know, this, this human project, you know, was never, you know, they could, they could be anybody. They could could just as as easily be some, be some group that, you know, may not be the the savior that that they hope that they are. I mean, that's directly brought up too. They're like, you mean you've never talked actually them. talked right, with yeah. them or been contacted? It's a yeah. string of it's or, like a telephone. It's, and it's explained yeah. away, yeah. but uh, you know, like oh well, people you talking know. to people talking to people, and exactly. so no one's really actually met them or so. Knows for so sure the thing is, I mean, it, it could be completely a myth. I mean, it could be propaganda or whatever. Or it could be people who will turn against you and try to use the baby as a flag, essentially, or whatever. I mean, or it could be the people who mean well, but they disagree in the way in which they can make things better. And so it's completely useless. I mean, which is very realistic and anticlimactic. I don't know. I guess I just the whole movie I kept going. So why do I want this to happen so badly? Like, I just that was the I felt like they didn't. I don't know. I don't know if it was supposed to feel ambiguous. Like, I'm not certain if it's a good thing or if they just didn't sell it. I think it is supposed to be ambiguous. I like a lot of things in this movie, honestly, are meant to be ambiguous, where you're supposed to sort of bring your own biases and expectations on board. And I think that is one of the things, right, of just like how trustful slash mistrustful you are of this idea of a human project out there that's going to save everything. I guess on my end, I just thought, I mean, what else is there? I mean, they live in a world that literally has no hope for anything beyond this. So it's either that or nothing. 
So and at oh, least it's no, you have to, to you have to do something. I get it. I guess I was more just like I don't know. I, I felt like I had a lot more questions than than answers. Oh sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does I, that mean you like weren't on board with this movie? Like you were just the whole time just like going, come on, what is this? Give me my, some answers or um, is it just specifically that aspect of it? I was watching it and going, okay, I'm a little confused. So people can't have babies anymore. Sure. Everybody's infertile. So, but the world is clearly devolved. And is that just completely due to infertility? Like that everybody's blown up and everything's all destroyed and essentially all that's left is Britain, which yeah, was entertaining. So. Well, like I- that's it. That's the only thing that drove everybody bonkers. I, 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 I liked the fact that something that I think we take as uh, a fundamental ability mm-hmm. um, and w- one which, quite frankly, you know, happens unexpectedly and to, and to, and to individuals who may or may not want it to happen. Um, the loss of such a such a given clearly causes a shift. And and it to me, it seems real, very realistic. I mean, you know, we, a lot of people do things for their children or for their children's betterment or for the, you know, the future that they leave for their children. And the moment that children aren't a thing anymore, aren't a factor. what is there to live for? Okay. All you know, right. like, like, you know, everybody should just, you know, get drunk and party because why, you know, what, 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 what's the end game? Sure. All right. I can be sold on that. I don't feel like the movie sold me on that. I feel oh, like no. Patrick yeah. sold me on that just now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one motif throughout the film is there's a lot of animals, a lot of animals who like Clive Owen, very specifically dogs. So what what do people think? They think it was just, let's throw some animals in the shots? He's or? a good person. Yeah. I dogs honest, like people that are good people. I honestly yeah. thought that was what like the takeaway was supposed to be. I mean, that is. A lot of the movie is about trust and that Julian, so played by Julianne Moore, told Key, who is the preg- pregnant woman, that she should trust Theo. Theo. Right. So I guess all of these animals are coming to kind of show like, yes, he is a trustworthy person because there's not for much of the movie. We're not shown much about his personality. Like he's very depressed and he's very withdrawn. So mm-hmm. you hear a lot about how he was. And I guess the animals are maybe another way to say, you know, a little bit of that is left. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's legit. It's still there. Um, uh, another thing I had read was that maybe people are keeping animals around because they don't have children <laughs> like because you need something so it's maybe a surrogate at least for children i mean it's well the, the crazy older uh, older woman at the end but she's carrying that dog around yeah all through the firefight she's got that dog she's got that dog yeah. man she's like just holding by like a leg at various points like that. i had <laughs> i had to rewind because the, there was a scene where sid shot at the ground yep. after he discovered the baby and you hear the dog yelp yep and i was like did he just kill the dog that would be awful and then the next scene you see the dog running down the stairs yep like, oh. i did the I same thing i'm like did he just the dog kill the dog the yeah <laughs> really so i guess the audience too uh, is rooting for the dog hmm? marichka is the name of the marichka the, yeah. the romanian immigrant uh, yeah and I, yeah trust too it kind of goes to her character as well i so my feeling when i first met her was that I guess we didn't understand what she was saying. I didn't know whether to trust her or not. Was that the only one who got that impression? Or yeah. did you, were you on board from the beginning? Like she's here to help out. I don't know that I had an opinion quite at the beginning, which I guess you make a, make a good point. I mean, a lot of people in this movie, you either have an, you have an opinion one way or the other. Your opinion might change when somebody changes their allegiance or changes their goals mm-hmm. and it becomes obvious to the viewer. But um, yeah, in that context, when she's, 
you know, speaking a foreign language that I don't, that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And obviously as a viewer, I don't understand. Um, I didn't really have an opinion on her. I didn't know if she was just going to do her job or, um, or what. And I would say, I would say that like, you know, she takes a huge risk to, def- to defend them. Yeah, and, that's true. And, um, you know, like earns, earns trust right away and maintains it, mm-hmm. you know, through the end of the movie. I'll say though, I don't know that she was that trustworthy at the beginning. I think she became committed to their side when she saw the baby. Yeah, that's true. It it did affect her quite a bit when she saw the baby. But there was the part where they went down the hallway and they had to scoot through that door. So Key had to actually give her the baby on the other side of the door. Yeah. And I thought, it was I just got this feeling that she was going to run off. Yep. And like you get about maybe one second where she's behind the door and you don't see her, where it's like really tense. And then you see her come back in front of the door to help Key through. So, yeah. I guess the movie at that point had just trained me not to trust people. (laughs) Whereas maybe at the beginning of the movie, I would have been like, oh, it'll be fine. But yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of like biblical, uh, there's a biblical feeling to the movie. And I thought a lot of the animals were supposed to be sort of like sort of a manger like feel to them. Like all of these animals really trust him. And there was actually a manger scene almost when he finds out that she's pregnant or like she's in the the barn, barn with all the, the cows the cows i felt like i felt like you know when they're when they're walking down the stairs when they're trying to get out of that building after he goes and finds her and there's all the shooting and everything they were clearly going for a very biblical feel you know mm-hmm. they have you know all the people seeing all the refugees the people who are trapped in the building seeing the baby and reaching out and touching it and all the violence just kind of stops around them for just a very brief period of time oh the i thought the birth scene also was very biblical in the sense that you know it was so and, and in fact she jokes that she was a virgin yeah which i thought was was, mm-hmm. was yeah i did find that tie, funny tying too. that in uh, earlier in the movie um but i mean you know there was the birth scene was in complete you know basically destitution it's no not not that much different than you know a manger it was a dirty mattress mm-hmm. and one person to help you know a, a woman who was you know alone in in this in this path that she was on one of the hallmarks of a dystopian movie is not just that it exists. It's supposed to say something about us or the times that we're living in. Did anyone pick up anything that was they thought was specifically relevant to the world we're living in? Or I guess the world of 2006, which I'm sure was horribly different than the world we live in today, right? <laughs> this is you trying to bring up the refugees, right? Well, among other things. Among There's other things, because I was going to say, I, I, I did enjoy the fact no, that... Only the refugees. I did enjoy <laughs> the fact that in Britain... That the department was called Homeland Security. I mean, oh, that yeah. definitely existed yeah. in 2006. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm not sure if Britain ha- currently has a Department of Homeland Security. No, but the U.S. does. But that's <laughs> what I'm saying. It would have existed in the U.S. in 2006. So I definitely felt like it was a commentary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously not knowing that we're much, much further along in that now. It's a different view yeah. now. I know. I felt like a lot of the things you saw in posters and like the commercials that were clearly like, you know, the immigrants that are living among you. Oh, he's my dentist. He's my brother. He's my whatever. And, you know, whatever. I was like, yeah, you could almost run that now. Yeah. 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 The part that struck me was really um, the removal of something that people view commonly as a as a biological certainty or even a right. Mm-hmm. Many people see great fulfillment and great challenge in having children. Um, and, you know, another large group of people have children as a surprise or with unexpectedly or without, you know, for planning. Um, 
and all these things really persist through our society whether it be like we want to leave the earth better for our children whether it's like i work in my job and i save money in order to give my child a better life than my own that removal the removal of that part of life is really something that's uh, that, that struck me, I guess, and that I could totally believe that if all of a sudden there was no reason to have children, like it might not affect me because I, I don't have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I, I could, I mean, I, even if, if we, even if we chose to adopt a child, you know, it's still a possibility if you want to like nurture, nurture mm-hmm. another human and, and, and raise another human and teach them to be, you know, be a productive member of society. Losing that, then what, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me that society would degrade pretty quickly because all of these motivators, all these motivators for keeping people focused on some betterment or focused on the future, Virtues. kind of go away. Yeah, and so that's kind of obviously the the immigrant portion is is apropos to today and to the society we live in. But I think um, that that that's one thing that I kept thinking of is how this very simple, what seems like a very simple thing that happens almost. Uh, very easily for a lot of people, mm-hmm. it, you know, com- can completely shift, <laughs> even if it's realistic or not. You know, that's the other thing too. You know, biologically, we don't have any reason to expect that all of a sudden no one can have children, and they don't. And that's not really a focus of the movie either. Mm-hmm. You know, they say it just suddenly start, started happening, and we don't know why it happened. But the way that easily drives a plot too is that if you can't have children, then that limits the it limits the length of humanity to like what. Probably, I guess, whenever that happened, like about a hundred years, maybe, probably right. not even that long. Yeah, which also made it interesting that it's like people are a dime a dozen, blowing up a whole bunch of people, mowing a whole bunch of people down was totally fine. Right, it's right. kind of the inverse of what you would think. You yeah. think that human life would be worth more, but it seems to be worth yeah. less because mm-hmm. there's just no consequence or you're just hastening the inevitable. Right. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I felt so, yeah. like. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. It's just, it does have a theme of like, you there's a lot of things that we just take for granted that could hypothetically be taken away from us and just fundamentally change how our entire society behaves. You don't even think about something like that. I mean, again, like you said, we don't have to worry about that specific thing probably, but there's any number of things that just randomly throw throw us all into a tailspin and then we're all going to die. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, the, even just their vague explanations of, you know, reasons why this came upon because they said they didn't know if it was pollution or gamma rays which i mean always makes me smile because um, it's just like let's keep the public afraid of gamma rays um but yeah that you know there wasn't environmental factors or radiation or i think they list a third thing that i can't recall but i mean things that are that are real i mean we we can't say that we don't see um human beings affected by uh our lifestyle and environmental choices even just in our jobs you know, see a dramatic spike in GI cancers in younger people, you know, mm-hmm. just in our lifetimes. And so, like, that's... Yeah, and Clive Owen certainly picked up the smoking and the drinking, too. I think I'm sure a lot of people then, yeah. then did. Yeah, why not? Why not embrace your vices? Yep. So a lot of things have fallen by the wayside, but there's still a very robust alcohol industry. And don't <laughs> worry, Michael Caine is growing weed. <laughs> it's called Strawberry Cough. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Michael Caine a little bit? And his amazing hippie hair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, patterned off John Lennon, apparently. Really? <laughs> That's what they said. Like, really? he'd, Yeah, he'd met John Lennon before, and it's like, that was his inspiration for what he was going for. Well, they have the Beatles, for. Beatles playing. Yes, they do. Yeah, that's both, true. Both the original and, and a cover later mm-hmm. of the same yeah. song. They do? Yeah. What Beatles song plays? Like, Tomorrow Never Knows, Yeah. Maybe? 
No, no, I know there's covers. I just wondered. I didn't remember hearing. So there's covers and there's John Lennon, I think, over the credits, right? Okay, yep. But there's not actually Beatles originals, I don't think. Unless my copy was censored. <laughs> well, you did buy the HD DVD version, so. <laughs> I did. The Michael Caine character, Jasper, is he supposed to be related to Theo? Or is are they just friends because they were, you know, activists together? That may be explicit in the movie, but I didn't pick it up either. I, just I, I don't, th- I don't know buds. that they acknowledged it yeah. at any point. Yeah. they. He's the only person who seems to bring out something good in Theo at this point or yeah. make him happy. Well, so. he's clearly known him a long time because obviously he passes off. You know, you have your, your one conversation that you get where he talks about Theo's past with Key and Miriam, which apparently is, you know, enough for some decent buy-in. <laughs> they they've, they already up their ante of, of trust. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. just from the story. Yeah. yeah. Which is, that's the conversation where we learn that um, Theo and Julian had had a child who had died, not because of this plague specifically, but because of a separate flu epidemic that had happened. I think they were supposed to show that influencing Theo, like, in the, the very first, when he first learns that he is pregnant, he wants to tell the government because he thinks she needs doctors, which they all hate. Yep. And then when he's... um with her when she's going to have the baby he's very concerned about like you see him like rinse his hands up in water and then he also like pulls out his like fifth of whatever and like dumps it on his hands too for like sterilization like i think he's a little bit more cautious of the surrounding environment maybe because of his experiences because you don't see anybody else worry about these things i mean because he gave out he gave up his coat because he gave up his coat to be covered in blood because Mm -hmm. it would be cleaner than Yeah, the alternative. That's, I guess, what I was thinking is that he just seemed to be the only human in the film at any point who comments on cleanliness. Literally, no other character, I don't think, at any point in time, comments on this or tries to make anything cleaner or better like that. Right, but I think that's because he's the only human in a situation where it's going to actually matter, right? Because if other people get germs, right? Okay, I guess they die a little sooner than they were otherwise going to die, right? But the baby. Uh, is like a symbol of like actually being able to carry forward, right? So these are the things like it actually matters that we should care about cleanliness and and germs and stuff at this point because it's not automatically just, well, you're going to die anyway. Exactly. And he has firsthand experience about losing a child because of illness. Yeah. And yeah, the child is like he's the only one in the movie who has any hope, like actually cares about this child for the right reason. And you get the impression that that he gradually turns into the person he used to be to some extent. I mean, there's a lot of action going on. It's hard to get a sense of his character, but it's revealed in sort of interesting ways, like through the animals, like they seem to really like him, even though he's very standoffish with everyone else and cares about the baby being delivered properly. And the very last scene, he's passing on the information about how to take care of a baby and really seems happy to be doing that almost like it was in his nature the whole time to be that sort of person and just hadn't had the opportunity. And well, that's his journey 18. through the whole movie, right? Is yeah. him rediscovering his humanity in the face of like gross inhumanity that's from all everyone around him. I, I remember being struck that very early in the movie, he said something, I forget the context, but he said, at least if I have a hangover, I, mm-hmm. I can feel something. Yeah. And I think dystopian, Movie-wise, that's that certainly comes up. Um, you know, either society has drugs to feel something, or they feel very, or drugs to feel nothing, or something that tends to affect the society in in a in an emotionally 
uh, directed way. And, you know, he says right at the beginning, he doesn't, you know, he needs a hangover in order to feel something. Mm-hmm. And I think by the end, he's clearly rediscovered at least part of what, what he had lost. So for everyone here, if you had to pick a scene, what's your, or so what's your the most memorable scene in the movie for you? Because there is a lot of, in a way, it is a movie of scenes, right? As much as I, I, um, I liked the extended, um, and the kind of the extent and the rawness of the scene, um, during the battle in the, in the refugee camp, I think the one that the most memorable scene for me is the ambush. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause the car is, seems like a very normal, you know, plan. It's very planned. You know, they have, they have a plan on how they're going to, you know, get these people you know, to where they need to go. They have papers, they have all the required documents and very silently there's this fireball that's kind of rolling toward the road and and it's other than seeing the fire there's no no other indication that anything is wrong and it just turns very very quickly and ends very differently than it began so i think Mm -hmm. that was the most memorable scene for me yeah for me uh i think the most memorable scene is when the moment where all the fighting stops when everyone sees that there's actually a baby there i actually found to be a really uh, powerful scene i actually got slightly choked up just watching it just because of the way everyone reacts to this child uh soldiers and refugees and militants alike right i just found that very affecting and just how it abruptly ends too you don't expect it all of a sudden somebody takes somebody shoots a rocket and then it's off to the races again and everyone forgets yeah, it completely forgets. I, I liked I liked how that that sh- how quickly that shift happened. How fleeting the moment of serenity was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, one of the more memorable scenes is um, Miriam getting taken off the bus and the views from the bus as they're going by when they're entering the yeah. camp. I envision or I imagine that that's that scenes like that. I mean, I think of World War Two. I think of camps um, and how much I don't know how many different books and things I've read on it. And so I'm just like, can very easily draw a parallel, like just being like, okay, well that was the last time you saw that person. Yeah. For me, I at the scene that affected me most. I kind of, kind of led into it at the beginning. It's just the very first scene. Like I completely forgot. I'd seen this movie before and I completely forgot that that cafe gets blown up. Like it's just a sort of normal day. Well, no, it's not a normal day. It's something very tragic has happened and everybody's paying attention to the news, but Clive Owen doesn't care. Right. We already know he's kind of distant just from that opening scene because he's the only one who doesn't care. And then everybody just gets blown up <laughs> like you're not there's nothing leading up to it to suggest that that's that's what's going to happen in that scene. So I think that's just the abruptness of it. And I mean, you know, and I don't know if it's meant to just indicate the role that chance plays in all this. too. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and that's part of the overheard conversation. Right. So you've got faith over here. Right. And chance over there. Like yin and yang. Sure. Oh, Shiva and Shakti. Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> Look, Julian and Theo. Yeah, there you go. Julian and Theo met among a million protesters in a rally by chance. But they were there because of what they believed in, in the first place, their faith. They wanted to change the world, and their faith kept them together. But by chance, Dylan was born. This is him? Yeah, that's it. He'd, he'd have been about your age. Magical child. Beautiful. Their faith put in praxis. Praxis, what happened? <laughs> Chance. It was their sweet little dream. He had little hands, little legs, little feet, little lungs. And in 2008, along came the flu pandemic. 
And then by chance, it was gone. Oh, Jesus. <sighs> you see, Theo's faith lost out to chance. So, why bother if life's going to make its own choices? <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, baby's got Theo's eyes. Yeah. I, I get the impression that whoever wrote the script or whatever was trying to have that be a theme throughout because I even took notes on it. And I'm like, you know, they there's some things that just kind of come together pretty quickly because I, I understand that Julian tells Key that like Theo's a good guy, you know, like they're supposed to trust him. But I mean, she's been with people that she's trusted for quite some time now, this group of people. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and is like, nope, they're going to kill us. Let's go. And the woman who's like her midwife or whatever, we don't know that yet, but like this her, this woman who's like her protector's like, no, don't listen to him. And she's like, no, I'm going to go with him. And I was like, well, that took seconds. <laughs> yeah. And them getting out of the house and not getting caught as he approaches, opens the door and like sneaks around making loud clunking noises with three different vehicles before stealing one. And like, I don't know, I just felt like there were there were a lot of things that were like very precarious and it was fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happens in a lot of different storytelling that, you know, it's only this one chance that these things happen. But it was um, there were definitely times where I felt like the storytelling they had a greater point they were looking for. And so these minor things, we're not going to waste a lot of time. You're just going to have to take our word for it that it's like meant to happen this way, you know, that where it's highly improbable that, you know, especially with the with the car that was not starting and how f- much of a head start they got. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was yeah. like, hmm, yeah, you guys would be dead. But, you know, sure. You know, we're, we're supposed to just kind of be like, this is what's supposed to happen. I, I think this movie did draw... Two things on that. One, I think the this movie did draw a good balance of glossing over the things that you, maybe you know you don't like, leaving them there for you to think about, but not dwelling on them because you know you very quickly are engaged with, for example, Michael Caine's character, right? Um, but you know, spoiler alert, he also dies less than halfway through the movie mm-hmm. or so, right? I mean, so like the thought that this person is going to continue and be part of the story is it you know doesn't doesn't go on very long but you know you're immediately engaged with him so you have meaningful time to you know observe his character um the other thing is too i thought a little bit about the the faith i I really liked that the conversation between having faith in each other Mm -hmm. and chance and i guess i'm i'm not sure exactly how far it's meant to carry through with the christian or biblical themes that come through that movie but that's certainly you know part of part of that that space as well the idea of faith versus the idea of chance in life yeah i think the so the director uh alfonso Cuaron had stated that so i guess the book that adam was talking about earlier was maybe a little bit more directly religiously themed is it yeah it's more explicit the director slash writer here decided that he wanted to use those themes but not get super like directly religious yeah. mm-hmm. about it so. and that makes sense hearing that after yeah. the fact like you can yeah. see that so yeah perhaps it's easy to be, be picked up place. on it yeah. yeah well it is worth noting that uh this is a very loose adaptation of uh the book the book is far in the book um theo's like a relative of like the leader of the government and so it's much more political in its ambitions i think and uh different it's a different character who's pregnant and stuff like that so oh but apparently, uh, reportedly, P.D. James was reasonably pleased with this adaptation, even though it's not a really direct adaptation of her book. Whereas a couple of things I read was that one thing said Quaron didn't read the book at all, and another one said he read an abridged version. <laughs> like he didn't want <laughs> to read the book. 
You wanted the plot, but which is only funny to me, Charlie, because Charlie and I just just went to uh, the Orpheum this weekend to see a presentation or showing of of high fidelity with a live Q and A with John Cusack afterwards. And somebody asked, it was an audience question that asked, like, if you're doing a film based on a book, do you always read the book, or how much does that influence? Um, like the adaptation or whatever, the script writing. And he laughed at it and was like, well, yeah, of course I read the book. Like, yeah. that's how you can tell bad producers. <laughs> if you're in a meeting with a producer and it becomes obvious that the producer's not read any of the source material. So that's just, I don't know, that these comments, like, yeah. here's an example where maybe you wouldn't want to read the whole book because maybe you don't want to be too influenced by it. But Different styles, I guess, yeah. Well, and clearly, like, some... Some books are better as books and some movies are better as movies and, you know, translating one to the other. But I know that there have been times where I've read books and watched movies of the books. Some can be very successful as movies, even though they don't stick to everything that happened in the book. Like The Watchmen is one of them, right? It it changes a lot at the end. And I think it's okay in both forms, whether it be in graphic novel form or whether it be in the movie form. All right. So at the end of the movie, Theo and Key get away from all the the fighting they go in a boat they go up to a buoy in the middle of the water mm-hmm. in the fog and they're supposed to be waiting for um the human project to come pick them up in a boat sure uh clive owen's been shot he's bleeding out uh and then we do see a boat come up at the end yeah with a very heavy-handed that- not at all metaphorical name of tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was. I actually would have liked gearish. it better if it just said metaphor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit in your face. Yeah, because yeah, uh, boat names are never in your face. <laughs> <laughs> Still, it was uh, funny. Well, I guess that kind of leads into what did you think of the ending? Did you like it? Did you think it was a hopeful ending? Do you think there's a lot of ambiguity to it, or what are your feelings on it? Um, I don't know that I'd say hopeful. I don't think that there was a lot of. Uh, you know, as we kind of talked about earlier, we don't know about what this human project is. And it wasn't as if, I mean, it looked like a fishing boat too. You know, it didn't look like it was a rescue vessel. It looked like it was some kind of larger seafaring vehicle that, you know, it, it did show up on, you know, as a range. So there's that hopefulness of it, but we don't really know much about the the people who are, who are, you know, being delivered this presumed miracle miracle of life and also if if it happened for her why wouldn't you know it ha- why, why was she special wouldn't it happen again in mm-hmm. some you know short period of time I mean, like to it was quote jeff goldblum <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess yeah sorry <laughs> well life finds a way <laughs> exactly um but yeah i don't know that i would call it hopeful i thought it was you know consistent it, it was consistent with the other questions that kind of went through the movie I didn't feel that it was a. Uh, I th- yeah, I was struck mostly by the by the ship name, and they had mentioned that before. They said, "I think that the t- the tomorrow was coming." I think that that they had actually mentioned mm-hmm. that ship by name already, okay. and then it was le- you know so that it was less of a hey viewer, here's a plant, make sure that you recognize the name of the <laughs> ship. Like it actually com- came up before, and maybe maybe it felt a little different in that context where you're out in a boat and like it was you know trying to be a little bit more a little bit more in your face than it was when it was mentioned in passing as this is the ship that's coming to pick you up. I mean, she seemed pretty confident. I think that was what struck me too, is that like just even seeing the boat, she's like, oh, we're safe now. And mm. I'm like, this could be any boat. You don't know if this is the right boat. You don't know anything. Adam? Uh, I mean, I agree that it's not necessarily hopeful, but it's certainly also not hopeless, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it could have been like that, oh, P.S., this is, a British 
ship come to kill all the refugees following the jets, right? It could have been something like that, and it wasn't. So, yeah, obviously it leaves it ambiguous, but there's still a possibility. But question I want to ask is, do you think Clive Owen is dead or not? Oh, totally. Because I thought he was dead, but then when I looked through the Wikipedia article, it merely said he fell unconscious. Mm-hmm. So well, I is, thought it was... is Wikipedia our baseline here? <laughs> <laughs> Well, more just that this is what even put the idea in my head. Well, <laughs> well no, maybe he's not dead. Okay. <laughs> sure, we can look at the so edit history on that. I wonder if anyone else had had and... that take. I, I feel like... <laughs> if look at the edit history. I feel like just <laughs> basically forth, with like, yeah. the, the themes of the movie that they're going for or whatever, I think it would be logical for him to be dead. Like, his portion of the story's over. Yeah. Isn't a, a gut shot, too? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. he's got hit in the stomach, mm-hmm. so... And you see him get hit. You see him get hit by... Um... Luke. Yeah. In, yeah. in the in the building, he'd been bleeding for a while, presumably. I thought that he, you know, died yeah. on, on the boat because he kind of slumped to the side, and I think his eyes were also stuck open. So I, 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 I had personally assumed that he had passed away. We're eagerly awaiting that sequel. <laughs> yeah, we haven't really talked about Luke yet. I assume that's because no one wants to attempt pronouncing Chewetel Ejiofor's name. But <laughs> yeah, that guy. Chewetel Ejiofor plays uh, Luke, and he's the one who is second in command of the fishes, which is the the separatist group. And he's the one who plans for Julian to, to be killed. Yes. So he's very, I guess, I don't know, what do we want to talk about specifically with him? I mean, he's focused on what he thinks their ultimate end goal is, right? And it can come at any cost, including killing their leader because that'd be a good rallying cry. They want to use the baby as a... A political prop, basically, or something to rally their a flag. cause. Yeah. I think they even refer to it as a flag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's also sold out on that idea that that's that is the key element that they need in order to succeed. Yeah, I know that I was uh, honestly surprised when it turned out that he was not on the side of the angels. I guess we can say just because he seems so like caring up to that point and he's like asking key like it's your decision and all this stuff right so i was actually pretty surprised when it turned out like oh by the way he's uh, actually as politically motivated as some you know any of the others yeah and maybe i shouldn't have felt that way because i mean in 2006 right he'd just been the villain in like serenity so right. you know he's used to right. being like villains but i think the most recent thing i've seen him in is uh well, I guess he's also in Doctor Strange, but I'm thinking of The Martian where he's, you know, very clearly like one of the the heroes of that movie. Mm-hmm. So so I think because of that, like I wasn't necessarily expecting him to to turn like that. And I was like, oh, no, Chewittle, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I learned how to say your name right. How dare you abandon <laughs> me like this? So I have to say that I th- so I, this was the first time I've I've seen this movie. And I think that if I would have seen it. Even just a few years ago, I think I would have liked it better. But I think this entire time I was underwhelmed because I feel like The Handmaid's Tale, the recent rendition that um, starring uh, Elizabeth Moss, is so much better that it was it just just paled in comparison. Kind of like the sloppier storytelling to get the ultimate like storyline across, like that kind of the greater purpose storyline. The Handmaid's Tale is crushing it, and it's so good and so dark, much darker. Like you had told me you'd seen it before me and you'd mentioned it was dark. So I was braced for impact. And then I was like, this is nothing like and I know I should be. I know I should be affected the whole time by, you know, the cafe blowing up and all the death and the whatever. And so I think that for me, 
the scene where Miriam gets taken off the bus was kind of the first time it got dark enough and gritty enough that it kind of broke through for me because The Handmaid's Tale is so much darker and telling a very similar story, right? Again, mm-hmm. most people are infertile. The, pe- the very, very few people who are fertile are taken as essentially sex slaves to p- help produce more children. And it's just this very manipulative, dark, dark story um, by Margaret Atwood. But anyways, I think, yeah, for me, watching it now after having seen that, it kind of ruined it a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, no, no. It's my. I've been saying if I just out of sequence, like if I just seen it huh, yeah. a few years ago. I haven't seen the new the the. It's Netflix or whatever. Uh, I think right? Hulu's Hulu, doing Hulu, it actually. Okay. Well, you can watch the first season through Amazon, so that's how oh. I saw the first season. But um, okay. and the second season was just released, which I've not seen. And I will give a caution out there for anybody watching it. It will like wear on your soul. Like you seriously cannot watch too many episodes in a row. I like mm. I watched that first season pretty quickly and. It affected me for days where oh. I had to like get it out of my system because it was so dark. I mean, I've read I've read the book. I, I recall the book yeah. and the, and mm-hmm. the themes. I just uh, I haven't seen the new one. Yeah, it's really well done, but really dark. I remember thinking quite a bit about. Um, I, I was thinking of District Nine um, because I, I I really liked that movie. Um, but I mean, this you know to the extent that what Jessica is saying. That you felt that this, you know, movie may not be as good as other alternatives right now. You know, to to its point, um, my thought was that like the refu- the refugee idea, which is, you know, you know, present in our in our real life and you know in the United States of America right now, and the question of whether or not like these people, you know, the refugees are allowed or whether we we help them, we don't help them um, as a, as a societal norm. You know, like. I, that was present in this movie. I think. Um, I think it was probably. Uh, rea- it, you know, I don't remember when it came out in two thousand six, but I'm sure it was like a, a discussion point, certainly, mm-hmm. of what was going on in the movie. But if you want to talk about how you treat refugees and who is, you know, what what is what is humanity and what is not, I, I feel like District Nine actually <laughs> addresses that mm-hmm. that question much more and uh, doing poignantly. it in Johannesburg, the little the wink to apartheid. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's a line that um, Jasper, that Michael Caine's character has near the beginning when they first go to his like hidden residence and they're in the car and uh, there's a bus of refugees. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bus of refugees that goes by and he says something like uh, something about refugees. He's like, you know, they they survive all the atrocities of whatever their homelands to get here and we hunt them down like cockroaches. I, something like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was it was really similar, and it was that to me was just kind of a little I don't know stun of a moment. You think about again what's going on currently in the United States and in in many parts of Europe as well. I think we've already touched on it a little bit, Patrick. But did you like the movie overall? Would you recommend it to anybody? Was it a good experience? Yeah, I thought it was a good experience, um, particularly visually. I think visually is very very successful the way the the cameras worked. The extended scenes really didn't give you a chance to to breathe in the middle of them. You know, it really you can't look away or else you, you'll miss it. So I think, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend it. So Patrick, thank you very much for watching something that we thought you should watch. Now is your opportunity to um, tell the world something you think they should experience. Something they should experience or right. watch or. But I remember you did, you were the first one to do an experience. You didn't experience last time, so. <laughs> I wanted to leave that option open for you. Ah, I forgot to 
scan my memory banks and figure out an experience that people that people should do. <laughs> it reminds me. So I haven't. We haven't fully finished it yet. Um, but Altered Carbon is is oh yeah. very. Uh, it's that is on Netflix. Netflix, right? I think. Yeah. Um, and so it's very. It, it's got elements of Blade Runner in it. So I guess I could bring up Blade Runner one more time. But um, <laughs> it. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's not quite dystopian, but it's definitely a futuristic. You know, future imperfect. How does how is society working today, or, or you know, in in this particular world? And and I'm I'm only about we're we're halfway through the first go round of it or first season of it, but um, that's it, it reminds me a lot of Blade Runner, so I'd I'd recommend that if if those are on if if that's something that you like. What's like the quick pitch of like a one or two sentences of what's it about? There's a separation between your um, your in- intellect, or I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if soul is the right word, but um, it is something that can be removed from a quote-unquote sleeve, which is the body. And so that it's it's the idea between your stack, which is your mind, and your sleeve, which is your body. And the fact that people can be preserved as a result of this. There's also a, a section of society who thinks that this is amoral. They're perceived as religious who say you can't reboot or you can't re repurpose the stack when somebody dies, they die. Um, and uh, the, uh, an elite soldier who has been reanimated into a new sleeve is searching for a a person who killed another, um, who killed a very powerful person. But we don't know who's good and who's bad. I mean, the, the, it's still kind of muddled. And so I don't want to say good guy, bad guy, but there's a soldier searching for somebody. He's, 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 he's elite. He is meant to, he was, he was bred for a a single purpose and that is to, you know, be really good at what he does. Kind of like Jack Bauer in 24 Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of person. And, um, but he's also been inanimate, inanimate for, I don't know, like an extended period of time. He's been around for hundreds of years and he was part of this, a war that resulted in the current society. And so kind of Mm -hmm. a lot of play over, over periods of time, a lot of play, uh, and whether characters are good or bad, there's, a noir component and certainly a futuristic component. So that reminds me a little of Westworld. Oh yeah. A little, a little bit. Just yeah. a hint of that, that rebooting concept and yeah. whether or not there's history and, and whether you remember and stuff. And th- here you explicitly remember, you know, you can pull it out of your, uh, out of a body and put it into Got another it. and it's the same person. So Adam kind of blew my recommendation a little bit. I was trying, I was thinking of, well, this what? is going to, do Minority Report? No, uh, a movie set in the future with Chudal Ejiofor. <laughs> and oh. I was going to recommend Serenity, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, based on the television show Firefly. And it's awesome. And you should all go check it out. And it, in that, he plays a like an assassin, like a very proper assassin. Very proper assassin. That's yes. a good way of... With the honor operative. and a code. Yes, the operative. So. He did a good job in that. That may be the first thing that I remember him from, too. So yeah, because I don't know that anyone remembers him from Amistad. Honestly, you're just like, oh no. yeah, I mean that was, was yeah. Amistad. That was like years you find before, out yeah. after the fact. That's like Denzel Washington and Glory. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm recommending The Handmaid's Tale. If you haven't started watching it, you should. But you know, break it up with something light. It's really, really well done. Uh, I'm. Honestly, I'm afraid to. Wa- I haven't watched. I haven't watched it. Kara has, and I'm just because of exactly what you said. Like I got a sense from all the reviews, like everything I heard about it. That I'm like, it's really, I'm really dark, open it and up. it really, really affected me a lot. But at the same, so like I'm hesitant to start the second season, um, 
because I know that, but I think, but at the same time, like I want to see how they because uh, mm. in the um, they're going past the book now with the second season. I mean, they. Oh, was it actually like following the book for the first, or was it like a a, a version of the book? A version, re- I would say. I mean, because it it obviously factors in present day technology, um, and it's. I so think that's, is it set in the present day, or is mm-hmm. it set? Oh, okay, okay. It's set in present day, um, and it's it's just really well done. I really enjoy the juxtaposition. They do a lot of um, toggling between current scenes of what you know her current existence is like. To flashing back to just a year ago or two years ago, you know, when things were bad and as they were progressing, or whatever. So you see her, you know, hanging out with her friend, like, like she's using Tinder and like, oh, yeah, no, swipe, you know, oh, yeah, we're swiping left, like whatever. And so like seeing that juxtaposed with like the present day where they're all in the long dresses and completely covered up and they're not allowed to like look at anybody or talk to anybody, you know, and just kind of putting those things back to back and being like, this was just one year ago. Like in her existence, which is essentially your existence as an audience member um, and switching it back and forth. They do that quite a bit. And it's really, really well done. Adam. Uh, So I'm going to recommend a movie that talks about uh, the identical themes to this. Uh, It's a 2006 movie. It's called Children of Men. And uh, (laughs) I think you should all see it. Yeah. Um, No. Okay. So uh, I think. Rather than recommend something that's also like very serious and dark and stuff, uh, I'm actually going to recommend the complete opposite as a sort of palate cleanser. It's Moana, you, isn't it? You need something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the, it's the picture of the rock with with uh, Kevin Hart as p- face pasted onto his baby. That's that. God. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm going to recommend the 1987 comedy Spaceballs. Oh, yeah, nice. nice. It's probably just like the polar opposite of the science fiction <laughs> dimensions. <laughs> Especially since uh, Rick Moranis is uh, coming oh. out of retirement to reprise uh, Dark Helmet in the Goldbergs. Oh, the no TV kidding. Show. Nice. Yeah, as Dark Helmet. So Wait, do the Goldbergs go to space? I guess I've never really seen the show, but I... Thought they were a terrestrial uh, family set in the 80s uh, in a very real universe. I, I, <laughs> I don't know for sure. It could be just like his imagination or something. Okay, right? yeah. But, but it is Rick Moranis out of retirement to do it. I uh, I couldn't remember why I was thinking about Spaceballs recently, um, but I remember it had to do with the guy who was combing the desert and said, we ain't found shit. <laughs> and it turns out, it turns out it's Tim Russ. And it, the reason why I knew why I was looking into it was because I saw an episode of Star Trek Voyager, and <laughs> at, at some point, like, had followed Wikipedia links to see that he was that guy in 1987. And so, I'm glad that I had to re-remember that now that you're writing <laughs> space balls. Already a good recommendation, Adam. <laughs> All right. Yes, Tim Russ is in it. Yeah. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for being on the show. It was great to have you on again. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And everybody out there, thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. You can go to cinematicrespect.com if you want to see more. And also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Y'all can stop me at the end of this if you think we've already touched on this too much. But um, so 
the end of the film is Blade Runner again. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm specifically not bringing up Blade Runner at your request. Did you guys all list your favorite dystopian movies at the beginning? Yes, we, we did. did. Yeah. Did I insult by choosing Blade Runner? No, a... Adam told me I couldn't talk no, no, about no. Blade Runner because I'd already talked about Blade Runner oh, too much. He's okay. talked about Blade Runner in like Blade four Runner. episodes, yeah. all right? Like I, it's I, come I, up a lot. So that was not a plant then. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I, I really genuinely, <laughs> independently. <laughs> well, it's okay if you bring up Blade Runner. Yeah. It's just Charlie can't bring oh, up Blade Charlie Runner. Oh, Charlie can't, okay. <laughs> Charlie's maxed out his Blade Runner quota. Well, I, I, use, I used my daily quota already as well. So. <laughs> Till we get to Blade Runner 2049 episode, which we've already planned. <laughs> I Coming up months that. and months from now, but still. I've, I've heard some weird things about that movie. Yeah. Is it good? I or? loved it. You did? Yes, okay. I did. It's worth but, seeing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, 